0: honor to be here uh, and a pleasure and so I'm grateful for you uh, to you for having me as Scott said I am a father of four girls which means I live with five women as he does my wife included so I want to introduce them to you first before we get started the tallest they standing is Macy and then Presley is a step down and then Darby is a step down and then I'm holding Marley uh and i'll share more of her story in a moment and that's my beautiful wife emily we met on the campus of texas a&m university so if you're an aggie whoop it out now or forever hold your peace okay we still live in aggie lands we live in college station uh, and as Scott mentioned, we had the honor of planting a church in North Houston around the same time that Southbridge started. And so it's really, really good to be here with you. We met in a high school, in an auditorium, and in a gym. And so the, the vibrancy that comes with setup and teardown is exhausting but exhilarating. And the community that it builds and the type of person that it requires, honestly, uh, to really make churches like this happen is a special and unique person. And so I want to say thank you to you for doing the hard work to make. Southbridge happen so that the gospel can be proclaimed in this, in this part of the city. I know it's hard work, uh, but I, I trust that the Lord is honoring that and much fruit is being born as a result of that. It's always an honor to stand where I know, week in and week out, the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed, and one part of what I do before I prepare to come is uh, to any church is I like to listen to or watch the the previous sermons from several weeks prior, and I've had the pleasure of watching Scott and listening to him, and I know that right here in this space, every Sunday, the Word of God is faithfully and humbly, humbly proclaimed to you, and so it's a privilege of mine to stand here. This morning. Here's what we want to do this morning. We want to see how the imagery of adoption, all through Scripture, paints this vivid, uh, intangible picture of God's rescuing and redeeming love of us. To the extent now that those of us in Jesus have the capacity to call God Father, that our relationship with Him now is one of intimacy and affection, that He is our Father and we are His beloved sons and daughters. And as a consequence of that, we now live this present day under the privileges and the blessings of being His. The full rights and privileges of His protection and His provision on our behalf. And even His loving discipline, Scripture says, that when we get off course, because He loves us, He corrects our course by His grace and His mercy. But then our adoption into the family of God does not end there. That in light of our adoption, we now have the clear mandate in Scripture to care for the marginalized and the oppressed, the abused, and the orphaned around us through a variety of means in a variety of different contexts. That orphan care does not just equal adoption. Orphan care equals a whole buffet of opportunities that every one of us has a responsibility to play a part in. That as the body of Christ, we function theologically, Paul says in the New Testament, as unique members of the same body, that we serve the same mission fueled by the person of Jesus, but We all function in unique capacities, that some of us are ears, some are eyes, some are hands, and some are toes. And then Paul suggests in the New Testament that none of these are more important than the other. We all carry equal weights of importance as we relate to one another as the body and as we function together as the body. As we apply that grid theologically to orphan care, we see the same to remain true, that not all of us are called to do the same thing. But all of us on some level are called to do something. And you need to be the best ear that you can be so that that guy over there can be the best eye that he can be. And you need to be the best hand that you can be so that that lady up there can be the best foot that she can be. And collectively together as the body of Christ, we care for orphans in a unique way. Somebody in this room might be saying, this doesn't apply to me. I'm too old to adopt, or I'm too young to adopt, or you don't know my situation, or the cost, or whatever the case may be. And what we want to suggest to you this morning is that as those who celebrate the gospel of our adoption, we are called to demonstrate that into the lives of those around us. Not all in the same way, but all in some way. Here's what that could mean it could mean that somebody in this room, God may be feeling, yeah, you may be feeling God calling you to adopt. And one of your concerns, and that might be financially the cost. But here's how the body of Christ works. That God may be calling someone in this room to adopt and someone else in this room to pay for it. And that's how the body of Christ works. And that person just now in their heart, silently, who's being called to adopt, just screamed loud. Yes, amen, right? Please, somebody pay for it. Or God may be calling you to bring foster children into your home, and then God may be calling others of you to never bring kids into your home. Maybe the worst thing you could possibly do is bring kids into your home, right? Amen? But you can serve and support those who are. You can babysit. You can provide respite care. You can provide meals. There's all kinds of opportunities for us to be the best ears, the best eyes, the best feet, the best hands that we can be collectively together. And it's rooted in and sustained by what we celebrate in the gospel of Jesus. And so let's begin there. As you read through scripture, you see this theme consistently uh, jump off the pages of scripture in terms of the effects that the gospel has had on us as individuals. That there is no part of who we are, our past, our present, and our future, that has gone untouched by the work of Jesus. That scripture says that our past has been decisively dealt with on the cross, Our present reality has been secured as those who are now experiencing the privileges and the rights and the benefits of being called sons and daughters of God. But we also in our future have this hope, this guaranteed promise of glory that awaits us. Holistically, as we look at the scope of our lives, we see that there is no part of who we are in this multi-generational story of our lives that has gone untouched by the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 puts it this way. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, and born under the law. This is my favorite Christmas passage. It's November. Next month is Christmas. Crazy. But here's what we celebrate at Christmas. That at just the right time, God, who saw the plight of his people, responded with the greatest act of love that this world will ever know, namely the person of Jesus, That God, on his throne in heaven, looked down and saw the brokenness of humanity and was compelled to respond in love by incarnating himself in the person of Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we celebrate in July. That's what we celebrate on Tuesday. That's what we celebrate all the time. That our God is the kind of God who sees the plight of his people and is compelled to respond. That's what we celebrate in God. That's what we celebrate in the incarnation of Jesus. Now, I want us to look at this. That he was born of a woman. That's what we celebrate. And he was born under the law. Why? Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. There's that word. As sons. And implied in there is daughters. Collectively as the family of God. Here's the picture that Paul is painting that positionally outside of Jesus, we were condemned under the weight of a law that we could not live up to. The righteous standard of God was so high that no human could achieve it on their own. We all fall short of the glory and the righteous standard of God and are in desperate need of a savior. But God, compelled by love, responded with exactly what we needed in the person of Jesus. So here's the picture that Paul is painting. That you were condemned in your past life under the weight of the law. Now look back at verse 4. At just the right time, Christ was born of a woman under the law. He meets us exactly where we are. That God sees the plight of his people condemned under the weight of a law that they could not carry on their own, and rather than remain at a distance and on the peripherals, he responds and he engages with us exactly where we are. You are never outside of the redemptive reach of Jesus. I don't care how steeped in sin you may find yourself at this very moment. The kind of God that we serve and celebrate is the kind of God that meets you exactly where you are with exactly what you need. That's what he does. Verse 5 suggests that in light of that, our past has been redeemed. That we were once under the law, but now we've been rescued and redeemed from that. For those of you in this room this morning that still carry the weight and the baggage of your past sin, you need to know this morning that Jesus has dealt a decisive death blow to that. It no longer defines you. It no longer burdens you. There is now no condemnation because he took all of that upon himself. Our past has been dealt with decisively through the person of Jesus. This is what we celebrate, but it doesn't end there. Look at verse 6. And because you are now sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Father. Our past has been decisively dealt with. We were once under the weight of condemnation. Jesus met us exactly where we are, were, and he rescued us out of that into verse six this new present reality. Our past has been redeemed, our present reality has been altered. And Paul suggests that positionally now, our present reality with God is one of intimacy. And affection, he uses the term Abba, Father. That we have the spirit within us now that gives us the capacity to relate to God in intimate terms. The word Abba is is a is a way of saying the word Father in a very intimate and affectionate way. Some translators take it so far as to mean Daddy. It's the difference between my daughters coming to me um, and calling me father. And I always, in my mind, kind of glorify it. It's in a British accent because it sounds even more proper, right, and unrelational. It's the difference between them calling me father, which they never do, or calling me daddy, which they better always, right? (laughs) And they know when they want something to play up that daddy card big time, (laughs) right? This is what Paul is suggesting. Here's the picture he's painting. It's amazing, watch this. He says, we were once in our past condemned under the weight of a law that we could not live up to. We were isolated and orphaned from him. Scripture elsewhere says that there was enmity between God and us, that we were objects of his wrath, children of condemnation. That is strong language to suggest that our past was dark and perilous. But Jesus met us exactly where we were. He rescued us out of that, and our new present reality is no longer one marked by odds and enmity, but now by intimacy and affection. Your present reality in Jesus this morning is one that you don't have to be afraid of whether or not God is mad at you. You can now approach the throne of grace with anticipation, not with hesitation, Because he is your Abba, intimacy, affection. Our past has been redeemed. Our present reality has been altered and secured in him. But it doesn't end there. This multi-generational story of redemption continues on. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. Now we see this future inheritance language brought into the equation. My past has been redeemed, my present reality has been altered, and the future trajectory of my life is marked by being an heir to the glory that awaits me. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul uses language like this. He says, you've been sealed for the day of redemption. There's a deposit that's been made in you through the Holy Spirit that is guaranteeing the glory that is to come. This holistic, multi-generational story of the gospel in our lives is one where no part of who we are has gone untouched or unaffected by the work of Jesus. Our past has been redeemed. Our present has been altered and secured. And the future trajectory of our lives has been uh, shifted for all of eternity, literally. This is what this means for us. That right now today, despite the fact that the world wants you to be afraid of the future, economically, politically, diseases, wars. Every politician is the the next newest and greatest antichrist, right? Everything's a crisis. You notice that? It's all fear-mongering. And they want you to come back for more so their ratings go up. We, as those who have been rescued and redeemed and adopted and sealed for the day of redemption, live our present realities with this future guarantee. And the guarantee is this. Jesus wins. That's it. Your neighbors need to see you not be afraid of the latest crisis. And they need to wonder in you what makes you so confident and steady in the midst of so much uncertainty. Because they're afraid. And we have the opportunity right here in this city to be people who stand confidently in the reality that there is a guarantee which awaits us that over and above all of this stuff, Jesus wins. That's how we live out now our future inheritance later. Jesus wins. There is no part of who we are that has gone untouched or unaffected by the work of Jesus. We were once this, we are now this, and we await this. Some of you may be saying, I thought this was Orphan Sunday. I thought we were talking about orphans and adoption. What's with all this gospel talk? And let me suggest this to you. Orphan care does not begin with the orphan out there that needs a family. It begins with the orphan in us that's been given one in Jesus. This becomes the framework and the foundation upon which our work for them is produced. That everything we do for them is in light of everything that he's done for us. This is the foundation. This is the framework. This is what we deeply celebrate in Jesus and what we are therefore called to widely demonstrate for Jesus. As those of us in this room that claim to celebrate the gospel, we are not exempt from the responsibility we have to demonstrate that gospel. These are not mutually exclusive ideas in scripture. The idea of celebrating and demonstrating. But they're one and the same. To the extent that we celebrate internally, we demonstrate externally. And our evidence internally of our celebration is seen very much so in our external demonstration. One and the same. We are people who celebrate the fact that I was once at odds and enmity. I now have affection and intimacy. That I can stand in the midst of so much uncertainty with one guarantee in the end. And that's that Jesus wins. We deeply celebrate that and we widely demonstrate that. That's why no one is exempt from that responsibility. We're not all called to do the same thing, but in light of this gospel that we celebrate, we're all called on some level, in some capacity, to do something. Orphan care, just like the gospel, is a multi-generational story of redemption. We have the opportunity to step into very deep, dark, broken places rescue and redeem, form new realities in the lives of kids, and set them on a future trajectory of hope and opportunity that they otherwise would never have had available to them. Orphan care, like the gospel, is a multi-generational story of redemption. Our work for them is the consequence of his work for us. As we celebrate his work on our behalf, we can't help but be compelled to work on theirs. As Jesus interjected himself into our brokenness, we enter the brokenness of their world in order to bring redemption. And among the unending evidences that we live in a sin-scarred world, and there's a lot, there's unending evidences that this world is not as it should be. Watch the news this afternoon. Crisis, wars, economy, all of these different things. The world is not as it should be. But even above all of that, There's some old ancient examples all the way from the very beginning of Scripture which demonstrate to us that this world is fatally flawed and in desperate need of a a Savior. Some very unique, obscure examples. Did you know that the fact that you can't hold a rose without being fearful of uh, getting pricked by a thorn is evidence that the world is not as it should be? If you look back in the Genesis account, part of the the, uh, curse of the fall of man, was that man would go and work the fields and work the earth, and there would be thorns and thistles now. And the fact that we have to be afraid of getting hurt when we hold something beautiful is evidence of the fact that the world is not as it should be. Did you know that the fact that all of us, I assume, I can't see everyone, um, are, are fully clothed in this room, no one's naked, I would assume, hope so, right? Is evidence that the world is not as it should be. Look back in the Genesis account. Adam and Eve were naked and what? Unashamed. Sin enters the picture. Their immediate instinctual reaction is to cover themselves and to hide their shame. And from that point on, throughout all of the course of human history, every one of us get up every morning and we are reminded the world is not as it should be. We cover our shame. We spend a lot of money covering our shame. We actually use our clothes as a form of identity and prestige and posture. And the great irony is that all that it is, is a covering for our shame and a reminder that the world is not as it should be. Now, many of us, if you're like me, you're like, dude, close on, close off. I'm reminded this is not how it's supposed to be, right? So it's a lose-lose anyway and a reminder that we're in desperate need of redemption. But among the unending evidences, not only in scripture, but also in the world in which we live, that the world is not as it should be. Among the unending evidences, and they're all around us, what uniquely pains the heart of God in Scripture is the plight of the helpless and the hopeless, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the orphaned. It's written on every page. What uniquely pains his heart, uniquely drives his actions. That's why Deuteronomy chapter 10 says that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68 says that he assumes the role of protector and provider and defender when he, he becomes the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows because he's God in his holy habitation. That what uniquely pains the heart of God is the plight of the helpless and the hopeless. And what uniquely pains his heart uniquely drives his actions. When God sees the fatherless, he is compelled to assume the role of father to them. It uniquely pains his heart and it uniquely drives his actions from the very beginning to the very end of scripture. But it doesn't terminate there. As the people of God, he translates that into our lives and says, what uniquely pains my heart must therefore uniquely pain yours. And what uniquely drives my actions must therefore uniquely drive yours. That's why Psalm chapter 82 says, you give justice to the weak and the fatherless. You maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Isaiah 1 says, you cease to do evil, you learn to do good, you seek justice, you correct oppression, you bring justice to the fatherless, you plead the widow's cause. What uniquely pains my heart must uniquely pain yours. What uniquely drives my actions must uniquely and unashamedly drive yours. That our identity now is we are seekers of justice, Isaiah 1, and correctors of oppression. That is who we are as the people of God because that is who he is as God. That is his constant M.O. He's constantly seeking justice and correcting oppression. And the, cattle, the, 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 the crescendo of all of that is the work of Jesus on the cross. Seeking justice and correcting oppression. You are a seeker of justice and a corrector of oppression that happens to be a schoolteacher or that happens to be a stay-at-home mom, or happens to be a lawyer, or happens to be a trash man, or happens to be a yard guy, or happens to be, you name it, a student, you are a seeker of justice and a corrector of oppression. And here's the beautiful thing about the subversive, creative, sovereign means of God in his kingdom. God will take corporate America dollars, and he will use that to pay your salary, to fully fund your missionary efforts to be a, a seeker of justice and corrector of oppression in this world. Some of you say, I feel called to ministry, I need to go work for a church. And what I might suggest to you is that you are doing ministry and God is fully funding your, your ministry through corporate America or through your school district or through whatever means uh, you, you create a salary see that as his fully funded missionary support of you to be a seeker of justice and corrector of oppression wherever you are right now, today. It's who we are. It's who he is, what he does. It's who we must be and what we must do. There's a myriad of ways that we can demonstrate our faith. There's a myriad of ways that we can celebrate the gospel and demonstrate it. We give, we pray, we we do quiet times, we attend church, we go to small groups, we do all kinds of things that are essential and necessary and beautiful. There's unending demonstrations of our faith. But of all the measures of how our faith can be demonstrated, caring for orphans ranks among the highest and the purest. James chapter 1. Verse 27 says it this way, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It seems to suggest that of all the measures by which we can demonstrate our faith, there is one which is pure and undefiled and vivid and tangible. Why? Why would James suggest that this demonstration of our faith is so pure and undefiled? Why? Because it's the clearest, One of the clearest, most tangible expressions of the multi-generational story of the gospel. That ultimately the story of the gospel is that God adopted those who were orphaned in their sin and brought them into his family. And we too now have the opportunity to engage these kids where they are and to begin to rewrite this multi-generational story of redemption in their lives. Real quick as we close, I want to share three ways that we see the gospel demonstrated through our care of orphans. As we celebrate it deeply, we demonstrate it widely, and we begin to see it in very vivid and tangible means as we care for orphans. Number one, that orphan care is less about pulling a child out of a broken story, and it's more about you being pulled into one. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God saw the plight of his people and their brokenness, and rather than remain at a distance, he was compelled to engage us in our brokenness. He didn't just pull us out, but he interjected himself in. Matthew chapter 1, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the great exchange of the gospel, that he who was filled with glory emptied himself so that we who were empty in our sin could be filled with his glory. He rescued us out of the domain of darkness, and he transferred us into his marvelous light. He loved us by first engaging with us in our sin. He took our story upon himself, and he made it his own. He carried our story, or maybe better yet, he was carried by our story to the cross. He interjected himself into our brokenness, and he began to rewrite this multi-generational story of redemption in our lives. When I was nine years old, I found out, accidentally, that the man that I had grown up calling dad was, in fact, not my biological father. I was snooping around in some of my parents' drawers, and I found an old report card of my my sister, who's four years older than me. And she had a different last name on it. So I took it to my mom and said, Mom, why does Christy have a different last name? And she said, well... Once you sit down, we need to tell you something. For nine years, I had grown up, and there, were, uh, there was one question I was constantly asked. Why do you look nothing like your dad? Why do you look nothing like your dad? Uh, well, that was uh, answered um, in a very unexpected way in this impromptu meeting. While that one question was answered, a whole slew of other questions uh, rose to the surface. And they began to unfold for me the story of, of the first two years of my life. With my mom, my older sister, and I living in a home with an abusive, adulterer, alcoholic man. Chronic abuse. And my mom stuck between a rock and a hard place of wanting to salvage a marriage, but at the same time protect the lives of two defenseless young kids, my sister and I. The night that my biological father came home, as she's holding me in her arms, and he points at me and says, One day, son, you and I are going to go out drinking together. She knew in that moment that he just defined the trajectory of my life and that we needed to get out of that situation. And so she made the hard and noble decision to remove us from that. Sometime later, she's attending a church as a 30-year-old divorced woman with two very large pieces of baggage, me and my sister, so she thought. And there's a young 23, 22, 23-year-old man on stage uh, leading worship. They would eventually develop a friendship that turns into a relationship that ultimately turns into marriage. And when I'm one years old, this man would take the hand of my mom in marriage and in so doing also take my hand as his son and my sister's hand as his daughter. At the age of 23, married a 31-year-old woman and adopted me as his own, changed my first, middle, and last name. This story is unfolding to me at nine years old and since then, some 26 years later, it's often the case that I stop and pause and consider at different moments in my life where would I be right now had this man not stepped into my story. Where would I be right now had I continued to be raised in the context in which I had been born into? The one most telling for me was the day that I was 23, standing before the altar, marrying the woman of my dreams, and my pastor dad was officiating the ceremony. In what's already a very surreal moment, marrying the woman of your dreams, right? It's compounded by the fact that the man who is officiating the ceremony is the man who literally changed my life forever. And there's no way that I would be marrying her had he not stepped into my story and made me his own. Fast forward some 30 years later, this woman that I had married, or some few years later, 30 years in my life, few years later, this woman that I had married, we now have the opportunity to bring a three-day-old baby girl into our home and begin to write that same story into her life as well. She's never left. She's since become our daughter, and we've changed her first, middle, and last name when we adopted her completely new identity, completely new present reality, completely new future trajectory, that we had the opportunity to engage her in a very deep and dark broken place that she came from, at three days old, already having experienced more abuse and neglect and injustice than many of us will in a lifetime, and having the opportunity for us to step into that and ourselves into that, alter her present reality, and change her future trajectory. There is not one day that goes by that my wife and I don't stop and consider Where would she be right now had we not been given the opportunity to step into her life? Who would she be playing with? What would she be eating? Would she be held? Would she be loved? Would she be this chubby, right? Because she eats so much. Every night I go into her room and I watch her sleep as I check on all the girls with her favorite passy, her favorite blanket, her favorite baby doll comfortably in her bed. And I consider where would she be sleeping right now? Every day, this constant reminder visually to us of the story of multi-generational redemption. And in all of that, I think we're all compelled to stop and to pause and consider at various moments throughout our life, where would I be right now had Jesus not interjected himself into my life? Where would I be? I can guarantee if we took a poll, probably 100% of you in this room would say, I would not be here now. I wouldn't be in this room. Some would say I'd be dead, jail, who knows? Where would I be right now had Jesus not interjected himself into my life? Orphan care like the gospel is this multi-generational story of redemption. Jesus entered our story and so we enter theirs. We get to break past cycles like he broke in us. We get to form new present realities. And we get to set these, these future trajectories in these kids' lives on a different path For all of eternity, just as Jesus has done for us. He pulled us out of a broken story by first willingly being pulled into it. That's the gospel. And that's what we are called to demonstrate into the lives of these kids. Number two, real quick. It's less about pulling a child out of a broken story and more about us being pulled into it. Let me say this. We will, in some effect, pull children out of brokenness. But not until we've allowed them to pull us into it. It's impossible to hold a tragically abused and neglected child in your arms and to embrace their story and have your story not be rewritten by it. Their injustice, their oppression, their abuse, and their neglect suddenly uh, trump and destroy any sense of comfort and convenience that we can build on our own stories. We are broken by them so that we can help bring healing and redemption for them. It's a deeply spiritual battle, number two, that demands we stand for justice at all costs. It was trial day in this foster care process, 11 months in, and we're ushered into court, and my wife and I assume that we'll be silent spectators. This is the day that the judge will rule on whether or not the parents' rights are retained over their baby girl, or if they'll be terminated and she'll be made available for adoption. Mom had all but been ruled out of the situation. They ushered dad into the court, first time we'd seen him. We actually heard him brought into the courtroom, bound in his his shackles and dressed in an orange jumpsuit before we saw him. They ushered him to the front of the courtroom for his day in court, serving a nine-year prison sentence, but still do his day in court. So they usher him before the judge, the lawyers, uh, and the the judge in just a matter of moments demonstrates in no uncertain terms why he's unfit and incapable of caring for a baby girl. We are operating under the impression that as a result of that, the lawyers and the caseworkers will come and inform us as to what the next steps are and what we need to do. We certainly didn't expect to be uh, participants in this trial. Unbeknownst to me, the lawyer was calling me to the stand. And I'm now beckoned to the stand by the judge, and I'm standing before the judge right in front of biological father who's just been berated and destroyed by the law. And the judge has three questions for me. First, he says, are you the foster dad? And I say, yes, sir, I am. Do you love this baby girl as if she were your own? Yes, sir, from the moment we first saw her. And then he pauses and he slows. And in that moment, I realize whatever's about to happen is significant. For the last 11 months, there's been trials and court hearings and investigations and all of these things swirling around this baby girl's life. And she is completely oblivious to any of it. And it felt like in that moment, what was about to happen was going to be one of the most important decisions ever made in this girl's life. And she has no idea that any of it's happening. And so he looks up at me and he says, do you believe it's in the best interest of the child for the father's rights to be terminated? Now, mind you, he's standing right behind me. He's angry. He doesn't want to be there. None of us want to be there. None of this should ever have to happen in the first place. It's an effect that we live. It's a consequence of living in the broken world that we live in. And we're having to answer these questions and go through this system. Do you believe it's in the best interest of the father for the enemy's rights to, for of the child for the father's rights to be terminated? And it's in that moment that scriptures like like First John and First Timothy chapter two just flooded my mind, where it speaks to Jesus and First John as our advocate with the Father, and in First Timothy chapter two it speaks to Jesus as our mediator between God and man. This picture in scripture of Jesus standing before God the Judge. On our behalf, and God the judge, looking at Jesus and saying, Do you believe it's in the best interest of Jason for the enemy's rights to be terminated? In Jesus, without hesitation, you can imagine saying, Yes, I do, and I willingly accept all implications of what will come on me as a result of that. Knowing full well that that meant death for him. And it's in that moment that in a very real and tangible way, the idea of Jesus standing before the judge seeking justice on our behalf became real and vivid and alive. And my answer to that question was, yes, sir, I believe it's in her best interest that the father's rights are terminated. It's in that moment that I realized we are albeit called and compelled by the gospel to stand and fight for justice because Jesus has stood and fought for our justice. That the gospel expects that we'd be willing to stand where Jesus stood on our behalf for their sake. Now let me be very clear. The enemy in that courtroom that day was not biological father. The enemy in that courtroom that day was not biological mother. It wasn't a broken government system. It wasn't any of that. The real enemy swirling around in that courtroom that day was Satan. Who was seeking to steal and kill and destroy the life of this baby girl. He'd already accomplished that in dad. He'd already accomplished that in biological mom. And he wants to see that perpetuated into the life of this baby girl. So as we say, we believe it's in the child's best interest for rights to be terminated. We do so standing against Satan, the real enemy, who wants to steal and destroy her life. And it must be said that if Satan is the real enemy in orphan care, then Jesus by nature must be the true hero. That the gospel crucifies any hero complex that we have that all of our efforts for them are ultimately meant to point back to Him as the true hero in all of this. And then finally, in closing, number three, it's the call to lay down our life so that they may gain, that we be willing to lose all for the sake of them gaining much. This is nothing more or less than what Jesus has done for us. 2 Corinthians 8 puts it this way. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The great exchange of the gospel. He was full of glory and we were impoverished in our sin, and he filled us with his glory. He took on the poverty of our sin. That he willingly lost all, so that we might know the immeasurable worth of being loved by God. We must lose our family-centric thinking. We must lose our pursuit of comfort and convenience. We must lose the mentality which says, well, I need to count the cost first to determine whether or not the life of a child is really worth it. For my wife and I, it was very real and practical. Our youngest was almost out of diapers, right? That's a big deal, right? Our youngest was, uh, we had bought a car to fit all of us. We bought a house to fit all of us and got... But God, we're almost out of diapers. And you want us to start over with this three-day-old baby girl? And when you put it in terms like that, our, um, our excuses are exposed as petty at best, often. But God, when you measure anything in balance with the life and the soul of a child, I can guarantee you, that the life and the soul of a child always prove to be more valuable than any cost that we may have to incur as a result. As a matter of fact, those costs in light of the gospel become privileges on our part that we willingly and joyfully lay down so that they may gain much as a result of that. We must lose our family-centric thinking and we must shift our posture to a gospel-centric thinking. A family-centric thinking dominates our culture. We let the rhythms and the schedules of our kids determine the rhythms and the schedules of our families. We have empty nesters whose lives are revolving around their kids at a young age, and when they move out, husband and wife are left with nothing between them. Our kids dominate our culture to a certain extent. And we, as people of God, must be willing to sacrifice our family-centric thinking and shift our posture to a gospel-centric one. A family-centric thinking says this... Um, I'm not sure if we want another kid for our family. A gospel-centric thinking says this, God's probably not so much concerned about whether or not you want another child for your family, as much as he is concerned about whether or not he wants your family for another child. Family-centric thinking says we do or do not want to get another child for our family. Gospel-centric thinking says we want to give our family for another child and willingly embrace whatever costs and implications may come on us as a result of that. That it's better to give than to receive. That in light of all that's been given on our behalf through Jesus, we can't help but posture ourselves in a way that says we want to give for the sake of this child. When you count the costs, the child always comes out more valuable. And so in the end, this multi-generational story of hope and redemption playing itself out in our lives through the person and work of Jesus, we now have the privilege and the responsibility not just to celebrate that deeply, but to demonstrate it widely. And here's the beautiful thing in all of this. As we demonstrate that into the lives of these kids, we are constantly reminded of his love towards us. As we love them, we see reflected back to us his love towards us. Every night I go in and I put my hand on her chest and I think, where would she be right now? And it compels me to step back and consider, where would I be right now had he not? And suddenly the lines of orphan care and adoption and the gospel become very blurred. Are we rescuing her or is she rescuing us? Have we adopted her or has she really adopted us? And the lines between adoption and the gospel become so blurry that you begin to see them as one and the same thing, because they are. Let me pray. So Father, I pray for great discernment in light of the beauty of your gospel, that you would give us all wisdom and clarity for what that means for each of us, that we're not all called to do the same thing, but we can all on some level, in light of the work of Jesus, do something. Give us wisdom and clarity and discernment as we seek to take the next steps. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.